You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast, where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare. With me, your host, Dr. Annabelle Painter. I'm incredibly honoured to be joined by a true luminary in the world of healthcare AI in this episode of the podcast. Dr. Eric Topol, whose work has been instrumental in illuminating what's possible within healthcare AI. Eric Topol is a renowned cardiologist, scientist, and author. He is the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, where he's a professor of molecular medicine. He's also editor-in-chief of Medscape and has published three best-selling books, including the highly influential Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. In 2019, he led the Topol Review, a report focused on planning for the NHS future workforce, integrating genomics, digital medicine, and artificial intelligence. I couldn't imagine a better guest to have on to discuss the hot topic in AI right now, the use of LLMs and other foundation models within healthcare. Our discussion covers a variety of topics, including the surprising reality that AI might actually be able to help doctors become more empathetic, the potential for keyboard liberation, using LLMs to repair the damage that EHRs have inflicted on the doctor-patient relationship. The need for high quality evidence for the effectiveness of AI and the so-called silicon validation issue when it comes to regulatory approval. And the challenge of hallucinations and the frequently wrong but never in doubt issue. It really was a privilege having Eric on the podcast and as always, his insights were discerning and perceptive. And I'm sure you'll enjoy this one as much as I did. Hello, Dr. Eric Topol. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Annabelle. Um, it's such an honour to have you on. And I'm really excited to be able to unpack this very topical area of, of healthcare AI with you. To start off, I think a good way of setting the scene is to look back to 2019 when you wrote your book, Deep Medicine. And for any of the listeners who may not have read that book, it really is a must read in the field. So I will add a link to it in the show notes and really encourage you to read that. But in that book, you discussed all about AI in medicine and how it can help make medicine human again. But obviously, since 2019, we've seen a huge shift in the field and lots of changes have happened. So I'm interested to hear from you. If you were to look back and were rewriting that book now, what would you change? What would you add? What has surprised you in that time? And how would it change kind of your narrative when writing the book? Well, first, thanks for that kind intro. And I've thought about this quite a bit, your question. I think the interesting thing is I wouldn't change a bit, but what was the mystery or the unsolved, you know, kind of major question back then, you know, really I wrote it in 2018 and published a year later. So it's like five years old now was that we didn't have a way to do multimodal AI or foundation models. There was no such thing as a large language model. It had been, uh, the early uh, theory of it from the transformer model that the Google folks had come up with at the time, but it hadn't been developed yet. So when I spoke with all the 
AI gurus around the world saying, can we do a virtual health assistant? Can we integrate multimodal data to have a hospital at home with ICU type monitoring and all these other things that require multi-layered data? They said, well, we're going to do it someday. We just can't, we don't have a model yet. So basically, you know, what I was doing in the book was projecting, well, someday we will, but we don't, you know, have it yet. And so now we do, and that's what's so exciting. So it sounds like what you're saying there is you always had the vision, you just didn't have the how, and now maybe we have the how. Yeah. But has anything that's happened in the intervening time with LLMs and how they've been used surprised you? Is there anything that you didn't foresee or that has been used differently to how you might have imagined? Yeah, absolutely. So whereas it was easy to get a sense of the being able to go beyond just medical images, which is all we had back then, and that's, of course, developed quite a bit since. But what I didn't forecast at all was uh, machines uh, promoting empathy. So what I thought was the gift of time uh, and that it was an indirect, whereby if you could decompress a clinician's workload, uh, get rid of keyboards, give patients more autonomy, uh, synthesize lots of data so you don't have to spend a lot of time going through all sorts of pages and electronic records, all these kinds of things, even fielding questions from patients as a front door, all that stuff would be indirect and give a chance to have time with patients, which of course is really what we're missing these days to develop a relationship. But what I didn't know is that what we've seen great examples of is that GPT-4, for example, has a coach physician and said, you know, you had, you weren't sensitive, you weren't empathetic. You know, this is how you can do this better by, by reviewing the conversations and the notes that were derived from those conversations. And also the very interesting controversial study that compared 200 questions that were directed to Reddit doctors versus uh, 200 questions to ChatGPT. And no question, the empathy quality of the answers were better than ChatGPT. Now you could say, well, that's not the real world. You know, that's Reddit doctors who were just volunteering and it isn't the same as the primary care doctor. But the bottom line on that is that there's a chance that machines through this large language model could actually directly promote empathy, even though they have no understanding at all what it is. But just the fact that they have been trained, pre-trained, for positive human interactions and being sensitive. So I actually think that, you know, at some point we'll use large language models for medical students and clinicians to train them to be better at communication, at being sensitive, you know, not interrupting patients so much, not letting them tell their story. So it interacts with the gift of time, but it's much more direct. It's such an interesting point. And again, just going back to your book, it's making me think, you know, the title, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. It really digs down to that point about, well, what is it that's quintessentially human that the LLMs couldn't replicate? And I think certainly a common rhetoric up until the launch of these kind of LLMs has been that that kind of empathy part of the, the medical consultation 
is something that we couldn't replicate with an AI. And it's been really interesting, as you were saying, to see how the LLMs are showing us that that actually potentially is quite replicable. And then I think that maybe leads on to the question of what do you feel in medicine is something that is truly quintessentially human? Is there anything that we will always require humans for? Or is all of it ultimately going to be replicable? No, it won't be a simple answer. The oversight of of humans caring for humans is going to be critical. That humans in the loop story, because you would never entrust an AI to tell you about a serious medical matter, you know, to let's say you had, you know, a new cancer or some other, you know, major autoimmune disease and you, you don't want to just get that from an AI and discuss all the implications and how it could be life-changing and, you know, what are the different options. This is where medicine kicks in the humanity, the caring aspect. Plus, the other thing is, you know, whereas maybe an AI could help have some conversation, very good at conversation, it isn't the sense of, you know, a hug and, you know, a sense of, really caring and having your back and, you know, somebody who could cry with you and, or joke with you. So it's a totally different uh, animal (laughs) and we'll never lose the humanity, but we sure could get help because around the world, we have a burnout of physicians. We have a shortage of clinicians in general. So if we could get help to, to, push on what we need, you know, which to me, the center of it is all the patient doctor patient clinician relationship, which has suffered so, so so severely. I totally agree with you. And I'm wondering then we think about LLMs in general and actually foundation models more, more generally, where do you feel the biggest potential is for their use in the short term? And then after that kind of moving out further into the future. The short term, I think is, you know, very exciting because of the keyboard, towards keyboard liberation. The fact that you could just have the ambient conversation save hours of times of pecking away at keyboards. And not only does that conversation, when it gets accurately synthesized in a note, not just transcribed, but, you know, made into a much better note than what we do today. But then it has all these downstream functions of the prescriptions, the new appointments, the tests that need are needed, nudges to patients about, you know, did you do this or that that we discussed? All these things that are, you know, in the US pre-authorization to get insurance coverage, all the menial tasks that, you know, just save time and are done more accurately. So that I think is going to be the most, that's going to be the change in medicine. Whereas electronic health records were a disaster. And so that gave digital medicine a very bad reputation. This will be the turnaround because once you can get really good AI support, which has trust, because for example, the patient gets a copy of the note and it can go right to the audio or, you know, the check on what, what what did the doctor really say kind of thing. So it's very, I think, set up for transparency, set up for efficiency. And I think, this will be the turnaround when the clinical community says, wow, we really got a tech support. And that's near term. I mean, we already are seeing it working in many hospitals for, in, in big pilot studies here. And so, you know, I don't think 
that's going to take my, a year or two to really get out there in a pretty large scale. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's, it's lifting the administrative burden is where I feel like the low hanging fruit is in terms of, of LLMs being used um, within healthcare. And I think another thing that assists with that is these kind of administrative uh, LLMs, they're, they're not medical devices, they won't require going through that process. But there is this big challenge about how do we regulate LLMs that are used for clinical assistive tasks? So perhaps if we first talk about where do you think the first clinical assistive uses of these LLMs is likely to be, and then perhaps we can go on to maybe talking a little bit about that regulatory challenge. Yeah, but the the um, use case we just discussed, I don't think is going to have to go through regulatory oversight. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which is great because um, that's going to hold things up quite a bit. Um, and if it works as well as what we're seeing, it will be demanded by physicians because, you know, it'd be a time saver and, you know, just a pretty radical improvement. Now, once we get to the problem we have today, there's over 500 of, in the U.S., 500 um, medical AI algorithms that are uh, cleared, some of them actually formally approved. But almost all of them are absent a publication mm -hmm. uh, in, in a peer-reviewed paper. Most of them are retrospective, uh, and the data are not even, you can't even, as a clinician, review it. And so if this is the precedent for regulatory, where they basically are giving these sub-approval clearances, uh, it doesn't uh, predict well that we're going to implement, that we're going to as we get to you know more sophisticated models that do bigger things, um, we have to crack this. We have to come up with a um, a much higher bar and threshold that it aren't just non-transparent proprietary algorithms based on retrospective data that clinicians can't review. That's just yeah. isn't, that's just not going to work. You use the term in your book about silicon validation, and I. <laughs> Yeah, I really yeah. think that um, a lot of these technologies, that's exactly what's happened, as you're saying, you know, retrospective validation, which we know that, that when products are deployed in real world, their performance normally significantly drops off compared to retrospective validation. So if that's not going to come from the regulatory approval process through the FDA, where do you think that, like, who sets that bar? How do we create that evidence bar? And who is it who's going to be producing that and holding companies to that level? Well, you know, I think a lot of the interaction is between regulatory and reimbursement. So if you don't have compelling data, which is unfortunately the case in most of these potential applications, the reimbursement won't happen. So just because you get a regulatory approval of these 500 plus algorithms very few have really gotten to high level implementation so what's going to i think drive hopefully the companies uh that are that are going forward with these is they're going to have to up their name in terms of the type of uh evidence that's provided and they're not going to be able to get away with this you know flimsy opaque uh path that they've been on you know the last 5 years so we also need the medical community to clamor to to speak out saying no we're not gonna we're not gonna suggest to our overlords to buy into these tools unless you know we can see the data and we are impressed with the data and so i i think that is going to be 
you know, it, it comes down to, you know, follow the money. It's not just follow the regulatory agency. Because if you get an approval and you get no uptake, what good is that as a company? And right now, that's kind of where we are with these image algorithms that we're basically using, you know, deep neural networks without uh, large language models. And it, it, they work pretty well, but the data is largely not available to, to see it. I guess it's challenging, isn't it? Because you need a certain level of approval in order to deploy these models such to start generating the data you then require. But we then need this kind of evidence bar that these technologies should meet in order to, like, as you're talking about being, you know, being commissioned, so following the money. But it sounds like perhaps you're saying that owners should be on those making those purchasing commissioning decisions to demand the this evidence to be at a certain level. And I'm wondering if you feel like there should be some guidance about what that evidence level should look like from someone for these kind of people making purchasing decisions to know, to ask, you know, an imaging AI and LLM, like, well, you should be here. Yeah. This is yeah. what I should expect from you. So where show me that evidence. Because I think maybe some of those people making these purchasing decisions don't know what level to ask of, you know, for this um, evidence. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, on like an evidence standard or, or that kind of thing that might be needed. Yeah, there, I mean, there's two examples, Annabelle, that I give that I think are kind of showing the, the contrast. So, as you know, in Sweden, they've done a, a massive AI mammography study, randomized, and it's also backed up by a large prospective study. You know, 80,000 women, AI plus mammography versus just the radiologists without the AI and markedly improved time to review without you know, more false positives, you know, it looked really quite good. On the other hand, the most randomized trials in medicine today are with colonoscopy. Yeah. And in fact, it's almost, you know, half of all the randomized trials is colonoscopy. And recently, all of them were reviewed. There's some 22 trials. And what's fascinating is, what did that do, having machine vision during colonoscopy for the gastroenterologist? What it, it detected more polyps, and, you know, it's a win. Unfortunately, the polyps were not, you know, clinically meaningful. They were basically small, not likely to be neoplastic. They led to unnecessary biopsies in some people. So, you know, you have one, on the one hand, you have what looks like you know, very impressive validation of the benefits with mammography. On the other, as you say, wow, we got to move the goalposts because just picking up more polyps, that's not going to be necessarily good. We got to show that you change the natural history of colon cancer. And that's much more challenging because then you have multi-year follow-up. So, you know, then you have to integrate in, well, the studies that show towards the end of the day, gastroenterologists miss more and more polyps. So maybe you need to just put the AI on, you know, after, you know, afternoons or evenings or whatever, <laughs> you know, it, there's lots of really interesting questions here that are unresolved right now. Yeah. And it, I think that speaks as well to the fact that even having clinical trial data in quite kind of limited environments is not enough either. It needs to be real world data. And you also need to be doing that kind of health economics piece where you're looking at the cost benefit analysis of these technologies as well, because that also you know, is really important in weighing up decisions about whether we should really be using these technologies. So I wonder, 
it's, it's interesting to compare to the UK because we do have here, we have the nice evidence standard framework for digital health technologies where there is this kind of guidance about a suggested level of evidence for technologies. But it sounds like maybe that's something that isn't currently available in the US. Would that be correct? Right. No, we we don't have that. I think it's a big edge. We could learn from the, the UK's guidance on that for sure. So while we're talking about kind of these these important barriers to deployment of AI and LLMs in healthcare. We talked about regulation, we've talked about evidence generation. What else do you see are the big barriers at the moment that are preventing the deployment of these technologies? Well, one is the the thinking of clinicians that it's all for them rather than the patients, supporting patients. So, you know, we're beginning to see more of these screening AI tools for various non-serious conditions or, you know, not things like a urinary tract infection or ear infection in children or skin, you know, lesion assessment, things like that. And that list will keep growing. And we should be supportive of that as clinicians because, again, that just really makes a, a initial screening, you know, much easier, accessible. It should be if it isn't free, it should be quite inexpensive. And so that's another way to really make this AI world transformative is giving patients more autonomy. Not everyone wants that, but I think a large proportion will, there'll be a growing interest in taking charge, more charge. So that's one thing we haven't been doing. And that also has a whole regulatory uh, framework issue. You know, but I think the excitement here is that the, each of us has, you know, this idea of individualized medicine. There's so many layers of data for each of us. The fact is now we can actually work with all that data, which no human being could actually do. And so that sets the groundwork for, you know, extraordinary opportunities going forward. Uh, and and uh, that I think is, you know, we're at the earliest stage of that. And we get too hung up about, you know, hallucinations to realize that, you know what, this is all new stuff. I mean, GPT-4 was in March this year. You know, yeah, um, we're going to have many other of these. I, I don't even think the large language model term is appropriate because this is now not just language. This is everything, every type of data input imaginable. So the the uh, prospects are are quite extraordinary. I think. I think it's interesting this this issue with hallucinations and. I think there's debate about whether that's a good term as well. And, and I've heard people say it's not hallucinations, it's just when it gets it wrong. And why are we calling it hallucinations? It's just wrong. But the problem is, I guess, that, you know, as we were saying, we don't have regulated medical device LLMs at the moment. And actually, there's there's quite a big challenge there in working out how we're going to regulate the LLMs and have LLMs that might achieve medical device certification. But what we do have is these open source LLMs that are out there. So people are using them for medical purposes Anyway, even though they're not intended for that use necessarily, and they're not marketed for that use, there's widespread use amongst both clinicians and patients, but with uncertainty around whether the information that's coming out of them is correct and no indication about, you know, how likely any given output is to be correct. And again, a term that I've heard you, or phrase I've heard you use before is that they have a often wrong, never in doubt problem, <laughs> where they're confidently wrong frequently. 
And I think this just becomes so challenging in the healthcare sphere is to, to work out how do we counsel patients who are using these products and how do we guide clinicians using these products around that issue of, of incorrect information and, and not being able to tell when that's likely to be. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you asked that one, Annabelle, because I think we need to have a reset here because today we use Google and other search engines to get uh, answers to medical questions. It's unregulated. It has all sorts of bad information and misleading, and it's not uh, incorporating the individual's actual data. You know, you really can't have a conversation, or you couldn't until now. So the idea is overall, this should be a whole lot better, and we're seeing evidence that it is. It's not going to get regulated. We're not going to say you can't use ChatGPT to check on your diagnosis because it's already happening. Right. We already have many examples, you know, of I've seen in my own patients, but also the case just last week of, you know, 17 doctors, three years, no diagnosis for this young boy. And, you know, mm -hmm. turned out he had an occult spina bifida that was totally missed. And it was life-changing to make that diagnosis, which his mother made through ChatGPT. That wouldn't be, have been made through a Google search. So we actually have something really powerful that isn't going to get regulated, that's going to be, you know, I think it's going to be great. And if you get the wrong answer, it's, it's probably less chance of getting the wrong answer than the, what you get when you don't put in data specific to the individual. Like, you know, now you can actually you know, get the uh, the conversations, you know, can help really dissect the, the what the problem is. So I'm not as worried about that over time. I actually think it's going to be a great enhancement, but obviously we got to prove it. We got to have prospective assessment of it, but I'm actually pretty confident that in the net, there will be mistakes, but caveats, I mean, what do we have today? It's not so great. You know, it's a jungle out there, but this is a, I think a more tame jungle. And what do you think we can do to help promote the safety of these products? What would you suggest in the, in the way that they're deployed and used? Well, I, I think, you know, reinforcing the human in the loop concept. Don't don't accept that diagnosis of occult spina bifida. But you're not going to because you have to have a, an operation for that. And so, you know, I think we we have to say, you know, this is preliminary. This is screening, just like these other diagnostic tools that we have. But they may be helpful. And there may be ways to enhance the accuracy over time. I think it's likely. Um, remember, the models we have today weren't trained, specialized, fine-tuned for medicine. They were just, you know, everything on the internet and Wikipedia and whatever else. But they, they didn't get specific medical training. Look what happens when that occurs. To finish off on a positive note, I would love to hear some of your examples of stories about the uses of LLMs in healthcare that have made you the most excited. Um, and I know you were talking there about this case of th this boy who got diagnosed with occult spina bifida from, from talking with ChatGPT. Another one that, that actually you sent round in your newsletter recently was a paper that was being published by, by Pierce Keene and colleagues where they're looking at, at retinal images and actually being able to tell loads of information about lots of other systemic diseases that would be completely unexpected from the retina, so like things like stroke and heart attack, heart failure. So I... I think both of those are really interesting examples. Do you have any others that, that come to mind where, that have made you particularly excited about their potential? Well, I, I think Pierce's paper um, was such an extraordinary example because, as you know, Annabelle, there were many separate studies that use annotated data sets to say the retina can give you a, 
a prediction for Parkinson's disease or for hepatobiliary disease or kidney disease. You know, who would have suspected that? But then to have uh, a uh, foundation model that gets you all of that even more accurately for each of these is is mind-blowing. I mean, it really is. So I do think what that portends is that we will be checking our retina with our phone once we can figure out how to do that without necessarily, you know, having to dilate our pupils or, you know, some, there are ways to do this. And those images would tell us about our blood pressure, our glucose control, all sorts of things, you know, ideally for free and, and accurately. So that to me is just an example that the fact is that our eyes are not as good as machine eyes. And now not that used to be, supervised learning of machine eyes now it's self-supervised or unsupervised so that is a kind of a window a precursor of what's to come and you know it, it, wait till we start folding in genomes and sensor data environmental data social determinants of health all these things how rich it's going to be about any given individual and how hopefully that can help promote their health Thank you for sharing that vision. I think that's a very positive um, note to end on. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Oh, I enjoyed it as well. Thanks so much, Annabelle.